Finally, I met with Dr. Vinuk, particularly to follow up with his thoughts on the SHARP study. But to begin, he summarized how systemic therapy fit into the equation before ASCO 2007. Not for lack of trying, but there really was no generally accepted standard systemic therapy for hepatocellular carcinoma. Part of that probably relates to the lack of dramatic efficacy of any agent. So doxorubicin had been sort of by default labeled the standard of care. Part of it also is probably the fact that systemic chemotherapy in hepatocellular carcinoma has been relegated to late usage. So with the proliferation of techniques to ablate tumors, radiofrequency ablation, transarterial chemoembolization, percutaneous ethanol, the more fit patients were typically treated with those modalities, and it was only the patient who progressed in the face of that who had declining liver function and perhaps wasn't a candidate for that who would be treated with systemic therapy. Certainly many of us believe that either there was nothing that was effective or we hadn't treated the right population of patients to demonstrate efficacy. Now, I think the group in Hong Kong in the last five years had demonstrated that there really is some activity to doxorubicin in HCC. In largely a hepatitis B population of patients in Hong Kong, they showed that there's a response rate in the 10 to 15 percent range. They had a paper on a combination of doxorubicin, cisplatinum, interferon, and 5-FU, which was exceedingly toxic, had a higher response rate, but survival was no better compared to the doxorubicin alone. So I think we'd evolved to understand that if you took high-performance status patients, you probably had a modestly effective drug. Now, there is a track record of doxorubicin in randomized studies since then, and that was in a study of thymatac, nalatrexed, which is a new agent being tested against HCC where doxorubicin was the standard. And the doxorubicin patients did better than the nalatrexed patients. That wasn't saying much. But that's where we stood. There were some experts who would have argued there is no standard. Others would have argued that the standard is doxorubicin, but in any case, nobody was happy with the standard. I guess one of the things I wonder about is how many people were dying of this disease without ever seeing a medical oncologist. You know, maybe people who had substantial liver disease. Do you have any thoughts or guesses? Well, about so that's a little bit of a moving target. With liver transplant programs and the awareness of hepatitis C, I think a lower percentage of the patients were presenting with overly advanced liver disease and HCC. However, even for that, I would generally say it's a third, a third, a third. A third of patients you see with hepatocellular carcinoma are amenable to some major surgical or ablative intervention. A third are sort of maybe, maybe not, and then a third probably aren't a candidate for anything beyond hospice. And of course, you hit upon the real issue, the other confounder, which is these patients have liver disease. And so they're going to die of liver disease. So it may be that even if you had an adequate intervention for the cancer, you may not make a big difference in their outcome. I was just wondering whether or not you had a hepatologist who would recommend whatever kind of local intervention might be considered. And maybe the patient might just go from there to hospice without ever seeing an oncologist. I think that happened often. Or they would see an oncologist, but after they'd progressed in the face of local ablative therapy with ascites or with jaundice, at which time there was really no intervention that was available. Now, before we get into what happened at ASCO, just again to sort of set the stage, 
What about the issue of adjuvant systemic therapy up until this point? To what extent had it been looked at in terms of the demographics of the disease? How much potential did it seem to have? And was there anything out there that looked promising? Well, there have been a couple of studies that have suggested a benefit to adjuvant therapy. One from Japan looked at a semi-synthetic retinoid called polypronoic acid. This was 10 years ago, and it appeared to confer a benefit in terms of either recurrence or new primaries. Remember, one of the issues with hepatocellular carcinoma is it's not necessarily preventing recurrence. This is often a multifocal disease. So the new lesion may be a metastatic deposit from the primary, or it may be a new primary. So polypronoic acid looked promising, and actually the data held up in a randomized study, but never became commercially available, never pursued the Japanese. It's just never been studied beyond that. There's some soft data that interferon in patients with hepatitis C may prevent reinfection and clear serology, and after ablation may diminish the risk of new HCC, but nobody really accepts that. And so beyond those two sort of soft data, one of which is not even available, there really had been no evidence of efficacy. And I guess it seems like if there were an agent with efficacy and, you know, reasonable side effects and toxicity profile, the adjuvant setting might be fruitful in that. What, about a third of people get resections out of the initial presentation? Right. So the real area of need is that population of patients and then a growing population of patients on liver transplant lists who are diagnosed with early-stage HCC who are waiting for a transplant. And the sort of trick is keeping them suitable for transplant for the 18 months or so it takes on average for an organ to become available. So if you had a preventive agent or a static agent that could safely be used, that would make a big impact. I guess right now, it seems like the most effective thing you can do for people like that is what, what radio frequency ablation or something local, or is it ever worth doing something systemic? There had been no systemic therapy right. anybody would use. It would be chemoembolization, right. radio frequency right. ablation. But right. in any case, yeah, there was little to be done for these patients. Again, one more question to sort of set the background, and that is, what do we know about the biology of these tumors based on the etiology? In other words, the people with hepatitis B versus hepatitis C versus cirrhosis versus none of the above, what do we know about the behavior of those tumors and response to therapy? Right. So the biology, the pathophysiology of HCC is quite different depending on the underlying cause of liver disease. So hepatitis B is a more virulent hepatocellular carcinoma by almost anybody's accounting. It's a little hard to tell, but it appears to be more virulent. Hepatitis C may be a little more indolent in terms of tumor biology. The problem is hepatitis B patients, about half of them, will not have cirrhosis when they develop hepatocellular carcinoma. Almost without exception, patients who have hepatitis C underlying liver disease have cirrhosis when they develop HCC. So you may have limitations on what you can do for the hepatitis C-related patient because of the underlying cirrhosis. Now, one of the issues with the serafinib data is that half the patients didn't have hepatitis at all, and that is not reflective of the patients seen in the United States for the most part. So if you were going to break down the U.S. patients, how would you break it down from the etiology point of view, and how would that compare to, say, the Far East? Right. So in the U.S., I mean, it's a little bit of a moving target, but probably 50 to 60 percent of cases are hepatitis C-related. 
probably 30% are hepatitis B, and there's some that are both B and C, and probably 10 to 15% are not underlying hepatitis. Now, alcoholism is given as a cause in many European studies. We almost never see truly pure alcoholic liver disease. So there might be some NASH, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, degenerating to cirrhosis, and then there are inborn errors of metabolism that can lead to hemochromatosis, alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, these rare, rare diseases that account for a smattering of cases. Now, if you look around the world, in Asia, there's a mix. Japan is largely hepatitis C-related HCC. There's been some elegant epidemiologic work on that. And the rest of Asia, for the most part, is hepatitis B-related. Is there a sort of a theme to put together sort of pathophysiologically what you think's going on? Does it have to do with regeneration, or what's the theory? Right, so there are at least two mechanisms. In hepatitis B, a part of the viral material is incorporated into hepatocytes and presumably just causes a dysregulation of hepatocyte, and they start proliferating wildly. Hepatitis C doesn't do that, but hepatitis C is probably an inflammatory response. So I think mechanistically they may be quite different underlying explanations. All right, well, let's talk a little bit about what happened at ASCO. Can you talk about sort of the background and what the design and presentation of the data of the STRAP trial? Right. So serafinib, of course, is a multi-targeted kinase inhibitor really has demonstrated very little in the way of tumor responses, but clearly had a track record in renal cell cancer as turning off tumor biology. And it's been pursued in a host of other diseases. In hepatocellular carcinoma, there was a large phase two study of generally high-performance status patients, although some patients not quite so good. But I think appropriately, the investigators looked at the best population of patients, the fittest patients, with the idea that that's where you had a chance to make a difference. They did a phase two, which really, you know, one person's view and another might be different as to whether this was encouraging or not. There's only a couple of responses. So conventional tumor shrinkage was almost not seen. But the median survival in this study was in the eight to nine month range. Now, that either means that it's a very good group of patients or that serafinib was making a difference. And they, on that basis, launched a couple of randomized trials. What was seen with alpha-feta protein and how helpful is that to look at AFP? It went down in a good number of patients, but that wasn't all that helpful since a fair number of patients didn't have elevated alpha-feta protein. What they noted was in a fair number of patients was tumor necrosis. And this is hard to quantify, but the radiographs of big solid tumors that liquefy in the center. Now, by conventional resist criteria, the mass is still the same size, but you can believe biologically that something's happened if you've got central necrosis. Can you talk a little bit about the biologic basis to want to look at serafinib and how it ties into the biology of this tumor? Right. Well, so that depends on whether you understand the biology of what you're doing or not. Serafinib has a variety of targets. VEGF is a target. MEK is a target. VEGF, to me, is it may be a very pertinent target. Hepatocellular carcinoma is a very vascular tumor. If you think of the way we kill the tumor or control it, embolization, RFA, all of those are really vascular treatments. So I think the problem with really determining what mechanism is important is they're really very poor models for HCC. 
So you really can't do a lot of the rigorous preclinical work that you'd like to. The only real model for HCC is the woodchuck hepatitis model. Very hard to work with, and that's a woodchuck hepatitis, which is like a hepatitis B model. So really, as opposed to colon cancer, where you can follow polyps to premalignant to malignant, there's really no such luxury with HCC. What about RAF kinase? Right. So, of course, serafinib is felt to inhibit RAF kinase. And Can you talk about what that is? Not very adequately. In the signaling pathway for a host of cellular activities, it's a downstream event. You know, I can't really give you the science of RAF kinase. I think the reason I have never really studied it or learned it is most people don't believe that RAF is the important target of serafinib, even though certainly in the Petri dish that's how it works. Is it supposed to be important with HCC? Right. So it's hard to say. I mean, again, depending on the model you look at, RAF kinase is probably not all that significant in HCC. Now, in the phase two study done by Ghassan Abu Alpha, they measured ERK and MEK and found that those levels were predictive of who would respond or not. But to be very honest, I have major questions about the validity of many of these tests because of the heterogeneity of the disease where you've got hepatitis C, hepatitis B, where I think there's very different pathophysiology. I'd be hesitant to, you know, I'm not sure which, if any, of these pathways are really relevant. One of the things from the SHARP trial is they have a lot of correlative sciences that they're going to try to address, but none of that's come out yet. That's interesting. With regard to VEGF, though, what do we know about bevacizumab and sunitinib? I know there are trials going right now looking at that. What do we know up to this point? Right. So I would say each of them have a little bit of promise. The dilemma with bevacizumab has been bleeding, variceal bleeding, and it's sort of waylaid some of the early studies, although there's a recent study from MD Anderson looking at bevacizumab and erlotinib that looked really promising in relatively selected patients who weren't at risk for bleeding. Sunitinib is also a drug that's worth trying, has a few responses early on, and Pfizer is talking about doing the phase three study. So let's talk about the SHARP trial. What was the eligibility design and results? All right. So the design was a randomized phase three in child's PUA patients. Now, child's PUA, or child's PU is a classification from the 50s, which really reflected the suitability of patients for major surgery. And it's measures of liver function and looks at bilirubin, at prothrombin time, at albumin, a presence or absence of ascites. And so these were child's PUA patients, which means these are very fit patients. So what would be a typical scenario for a patient with child's A? Child's A would be a patient most likely on a liver transplant list who's got cirrhosis of the liver with well-preserved liver function, platelets, you know, 90K or 100K, normal INR, slightly elevated transaminases, normal bilirubin, who on a screening CT scan develops an HCC. Do you know in the United States roughly what fraction of patients are child's A? Well, again, so those in the liver clinics, you know, many of them are, and they're waiting for liver to become available. And it's hard to get at that number, but in general, those are still patients who would be siphoned off to embolization or RFA, although there is a population of patients who may have multifocal disease or vascular invasion 
who aren't candidates for these ablative techniques. But if you look at the 19,000 or whatever number of HCC that is going to be in the United States this year, if you had to guess, what fraction overall were child's A? I'd say probably half are child's A, although many of them are still resection or transplant candidates. Right. And again, hard to get at the number. One of the problems is even knowing the number of cases, because a lot of patients on liver transplant lists have sort of the de facto diagnosis of HCC, but have never been biopsied. And they may not be really categorized as having HCC, even though they've got cirrhosis of the liver, a space-occupying lesion in the liver. So these numbers are a bit elusive. But it also sounds like from what you're saying is that if you look at the patients who are going to present for systemic therapy that an oncologist might see, probably a minority will be child's A. Absolutely. A number of us have talked about these results. We would estimate that maybe 10% of the patients who, at least in this era, are seen by the medical oncologist for HCC, maybe 10% would actually fit. Now, part of our job is to change that paradigm and get these patients to the medical oncologist sooner now that there's something to offer. I mean, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the issue of lung cancer and, you know, criteria for surgery, surgical resection, comorbidity, et cetera. But I gather that the issue in terms of child's A or B is really more related to the underlying liver rather than the tumor? Right. So. They are interrelated. Right. Certainly, you can be a child's B because of jaundice or ascites, and that may be related to invasion of the tumor into the portal vein and causing portal hypertension. So they're not independent events. But child's pew is really a commentary on the liver disease rather than the tumor burden. So let's get back so to they the took, So this is a study with child's A patients now, a few patients had high bilirubin because child's A, you're allocated points for each of the number of five different categories. You could get an extra point for high bilirubin and still be a child's A, so a smattering of patients with high bilirubins. But these are child's A patients with good platelet count, good white count, excellent performance status. And the randomization was to placebo versus serafinib. Serafinib, 400 milligrams twice a day in perpetuity. Now, it turns out that more than half of the pay, this is done mostly in Europe, where the placebo arm was sort of necessary and, in fact, accrued mostly by hepatologists in Europe, where they don't believe in doxorubis. And rightly or wrongly, many other parts of the world would have thought the patients, and I can say a little bit about a randomized study looking at doxorubicin with or without serafinib, which they also conducted in parallel. So the study was done. The endpoints were interesting. Overall survival was an endpoint. Progression-free survival was an endpoint, and time to symptom progression was an endpoint. And part of the knowing exactly what was what is difficult because all the data hasn't really been fleshed out. But doctors could keep patients on serafinib even with radiographic progression if they didn't have symptomatic progression. And so it's a little, you know, it doesn't take away from the merits of the study, but it makes it a little hard to sort exactly through. And so they did the study, they randomized it, and they had an interim analysis, a planned interim analysis. And at the interim analysis, they had a superior outcome for the patients on the serafinib arm. And ultimately, the overall survival is in the 10.7 months versus 7.9 months, which is really a 
A couple of things that are important. The 7.9 months is a reasonably good survival for a control group of patients. Tells you these were really pretty good patients. 10.7 months is a lot. Now it sort of tells you the state of the disease if we're applauding that kind of result. Now one of the interesting things is time to symptom progression was no different really in the two arms. Progression-free survival radiographically was quite different. It was almost doubled in the serafinib arm versus the placebo arm. And at least by their accounts, this was well tolerated. And you know, the toxicity profile was really pretty modest. Now, anecdotally, we and others have all been exchanging emails that we're seeing much more skin toxicity with serafinib than is reported from the SHARP trial. And it may, again, have to do with the population of patients. And one of the issues, in my view, the sort of limits of the SHARP trial in terms of applying it to the patients we see here, that more than half of the patients didn't have underlying hepatitis. Many had cirrhosis of alcohol or other etiology, and I'm not sure what that other etiology is. I mean, again, here in the States, almost everybody has underlying hepatitis, and I think the tolerability of many drugs is dramatically altered in the presence of active hepatitis. What's the metabolism and excretion of serafinib? Right, so it's excreted in the biliary tree, and that's a major concern, although not sure it may not really be a problem, but I think the limitation to the SHARP trial is can you apply this to the average patient who shows up in your office, the patient with a modestly high bilirubin? CALGB did a study, 60301, where they looked at serafinib in patients with organ dysfunction. And there are limits to what you can deduce from studies like this, but patients with high bilirubin in that study got much worse hyperbilirubinemia on serafinib. In fact, the dose that they were able to tolerate if they start out with a high bilirubin was one-twelfth of the dose of serafinib used in the study, in the SHARP trial. I caution you, it doesn't mean that there may be other explanations for it. But that's the big concern I have with serafinib, which is the study was well done and appropriately done in fit patients who are really, I call them Olympic athletes with hepatocellular carcinoma. That's fine. But when you see the non fit patient, you know, how do you apply it? Now, the flip side, of course, is, well, what else are you going to do for these patients? And that's the balance. You mentioned the trial looking at doxorubicin and serafinib. Can you talk about that? Well, it's going to be made public, I think, in Barcelona. What is known is that it also was closed early because at an interim analysis with the serafinib doxorubicin group doing far better than the doxorubicin alone arm. You know, I know some details, I can't really share them, but I think that result would tell you that serafinib can be combined with other drugs that may have ramifications in many other diseases as well as in HCC. Just getting back, though, to the side effects and toxicity of the SHARP trial, were the dermatologic issues the same as, for example, what's seen with renal cell and other tumors, hand-foot, essentially? It was, and about in the same percentage. It's a hand-foot syndrome. Again, part of it may just be patient selection, but we've seen quite a bit of hand-foot syndrome in the dozen or so patients we've treated. Again, too early to conclude anything. Part of it is these patients had been previously treated. Many of them were not exactly child's A patients. I've been hearing from the renal cell docs, smatterings of using greases and stuff like that. Is that something you're doing? 
Well, we try empiric things. I mean, I'm at a loss to know how to manage this hand foot. Generally, I just back off on the drug until it resolves. And I guess what I'm hearing is it's different than, for example, a hand foot you see with capecitabine or doxol. Is that the case? Yeah, with doxol and capecitabine, it's more of a diffuse sort of redness and inflammation. It appears with serafinib, at least the cases we've seen, are sort of splotchy. So it's not the entire skin set. It sort of blotches of toxicity. What about actual, I know there are very few responses in the SHARP study, and I guess in general there have been very few actual... responses in the SHARP study were 2%. Can you put in perspective what you think the benefit might be at this point? Well, so in these, you could theorize, the obvious answer is that the benefit is in preventing tumor growth which in HCC is really very important because patients succumb to liver failure and tumor growth into blood vessels, for example, is a major source of morbidity and a major sign of progression. Do you get the feeling that, or do you have the impression that this is clinically meaningful? It must be, at least in the population studied, it appears to have been clinically meaningful. I think the issue is gonna be is it more or less meaningful in more advanced patients? You could reason that a patient with marginal liver disease may be more vulnerable to a little bit of tumor progression, and so controlling the tumor may make more of a difference, or you could argue it the other way. It's not crazy to wonder, could serafinib be changing the course of cirrhosis? So somehow or other, do these factors promote the worsening of cirrhosis? Because when you don't shrink the tumor, it's kind of hard to really pinpoint what the effect is from. Hmm. Well, I guess, I mean, I was thinking it was just, even though you didn't shrink it, that it was a static type thing. I assume so. And static, again, you know, one of the things uh, serafinib, this story illustrates is probably that the paradigm for drug development is broken, or at least conventional way of developing new agents is flawed because I admit that when I was shown the data on serafinib in the phase two, I said I wouldn't launch a phase three. I don't think there's enough here. And I turns out probably to be wrong. And it's a wake-up call to all of us that cytostatic agents may really be making plenty of a difference. I mean, in conventional wisdom is you don't shrink the tumor, you don't make a difference, and it may not be the case. Let's talk a little bit about practical clinical implications of this. And first question would be, what about serafinib in Childs B or C? Right. So Baronix are at the FDA with their package for approval, and they will request approval in Childs PUB. They do have about, I think, 30 or 40 patients who have received serafinib. And, you know, at least the data that they show suggests that the patients may get the same benefit relatively speaking, with child's pub as those who have child's pua. They show that there's toxicity that it's generally tolerable with the exception of some patients with high bilirubins. So I think they're going to look for a label that may allow child's pua and child's pub. I don't know what the FDA will say. Practically speaking, my own view is that I think serafinib, certainly the child's A patient is now the standard. I might be quite comfortable using serafinib in the child's B with a normal bilirubin. And I think the patients with high bilirubins or child C, I would have major misgivings about using it. Now, I think it's in fairness, there's a lot more studies that need to be done. You can only do them at a certain pace, and that'll inform that. It sort of reminds me in a weird way of lung cancer when you look at patients who have poor performance status 
trying to decide how aggressive to treat them. And the lung cancer docs are more aggressive when the performance status is because of the tumor as opposed to underlying lung disease. Would that same model sort of apply here if you had a patient who was a child's B, but it seemed like it was more because of tumor than underlying disease? Yeah, hard to say. I mean, I think the problem is because of the manifestations of child's B, the systemic effects, I think they're less separable than it's hard to tell in the HCC patient how much of it is just liver disease. I mean, occasionally you know a patient who's had their primary resected and has metastatic disease, but it's much more fuzzy than that. Now, what about dosing and stopping the dose for toxicity? You were mentioning your impression that maybe it's going to be a little tougher than it seemed in the SHARP trial. Are you going to start out with full dose? Right. So we are in patients with normal liver function. We're using 400 BID and using it in perpetuity. The interesting thing is the average patient was on it, I think, for 16 weeks in the SHARP trial, even though radiographic progression happened by 12 weeks in the placebo patients. On average, they stayed on it an additional four weeks. So at least in that study, it was apparently very well tolerated. What about the issue of doxorubicin plus serafinib once you know all these data come out? Let's just say we're in a situation where we have publication of both of these studies and they seem consistent with what preliminary data is showing at this point. How do you think it's going to flesh out? How do you think we're going to be treating HCC six months from now? Yeah, well, that's a good question. Using doxorubicin, of course, doxorubicin is metabolized by the liver and you need to dose reduce for patients with high bilirubin. I would think that would be restricted just to the patients with normal bilirubin. The way I would put it is if we're talking about serafinib and drug X instead of doxorubicin, I think people might say, oh yeah, that's the combination to use. I think there's a certain sort of doubt about doxorubicin and HCC, which I think the uptake won't be all that high. You know, I think where we go from here is I chair the NCI's hepatobiliary task force, and our job is to sort of put some sense into the studies that are being done. And the general belief is that we should be exploring new combinations with serafinib and maybe a few without serafinib, and over the next year or so, come up with a putative contender for a serafinib versus new therapy study. What are some of the favored combinations? Certainly, bevacizumab or lotnib looks very nice in their phase two. There's conventional chemotherapy, although most people, I think, are going to be leaning. There's gemcitabine oxaliplatin. Cetuximab. I mean, their phase two is suggesting modest activity in each of these. I think one of the issues is you want to have comparable toxicities, and in general, chemotherapy is very tough to give patients with HCC. What about combinations with serafinib? You name it, and the combinations being tested. So serafinib or lotinib, serafinib RAD001, which is an mTOR inhibitor, serafinib bevacizumab, and then I think the other real exciting area is serafinib in other settings. So serafinib after embolization, for example, can it prevent revascularization. Serafinib adjuvant, which could make a big splash. And those are studies that need to be done. What about the use of serafinib off-study in those situation adjuvant and after embolization? Right. So hard to justify it. On the other hand, hard to argue against it. You know, ideally, the study would be done, and if it's effective, it's hard to see how it wouldn't be effective. If it's cytostatic, it's hard to know why you couldn't prevent new tumors or prevent regrowth, but you need to do the study. Does that mean you wouldn't use it? 
Well, when it's available, I think many people would use it. I think it's a very, you know, this is one of those times where being a purist and an academic may get trumped by the practical reality of there's nothing else to do for patients. What about predictors of response in HCC to serafinib? Yeah, and so that's where the ERK-MEK pathway comes in, but that's really very early, and I don't think there's any there there. In the, you know, one of the issues, of course, response, you don't get conventional responses, so you're looking for those patients who live longer than the others who don't or have stable disease. And at least so far, there's really, it's all preliminary guesswork.